0: Well good evening everyone. If you're new or visiting, my name's Rod. I'm one of the pastors here. Let me add my welcome to Mark's. We're moving through this series in Proverbs. We've been collecting your crowdsourced wisdom and um, there'll be an opportunity again tonight afterwards to uh, give us your wisdom on this topic of sexual purity. Um, I guess it's a heavy topic uh, confronting in our society today. So let me uh, pray for us now. ask that God will help us as we think about this topic this evening from Proverbs. So please join me. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you uh, for your word to us. I want to acknowledge that uh, often it stands in great contrast to the society around us. Indeed, it's confronting for us as well. And Lord, we pray that you might help us to heed your voice tonight, that we might hear it clearly through your word, and that you might give us hearts that are ready to respond. Indeed, encouraged by your grace to us, and challenged by the standard you set before us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, In terms of values and attitudes in the Western world today, you'd have to say that premarital sex is okay, that adultery is fine, that homosexuality and bisexuality are legitimate and indeed natural choices. And the underlying message that keeps coming through to us all the time is that sexual immorality is okay, that it's fine in all its forms, that no one should stand against that or judge it. To do anything otherwise is to be prudish and narrow and constrained. And of course, the media feeds us these ideas all the time. Um, it both reflects our society and also encourages our society, it seems at times, in its sexual promiscuity and I think this is probably epitomised on television by the show Love Island of late, because it's the latest edition of Temptation Island. Um, But you know, the online promo uh, material for this series is just so blunt. Uh, We've reached a point where we don't pretend it's anything but this. It says this, uh, Love Island Australia sees a group of sexy singles coupling up in a luxury villa in search of the ultimate summer of lust. There you have it. Um, it's one of those shows, isn't it, where there's no sense of wrongdoing or moral shame. Indeed, it's just provocative and it's there. And of course, the ratings are good. People are interested to see what unfolds in such a show. But it's not just our television shows, is it? It's our huge advertising billboards, it's our magazines and other publications, it's the movies uh, that are produced. Indeed, it's what fills the internet sites. And of course, all of that uh, range of material goes from, I guess, the fairly innocent to the quite extreme. And so you can have lots of articles these days that just talk about our sexuality as something to flaunt or use however we want, which is a misunderstood uh, view of how we might see ourselves. But that goes all the way to the extreme on the other end of the spectrum, if you like, of explicit pornographic material. Now, Sadly, porn is big business. Um, back in 2011, which was the last good figures I could find, it was worth $60 billion worldwide. $12 billion alone, just in the United States, each year. $12 billion a year. And so I put it to you that it's very difficult um, to live as a Christian in our society without being impacted in some way or other by the world's degraded view of our sexuality. You know, the purity God calls us to in the Bible is that our sexuality might only be expressed in the monogamous, lifelong commitment that is the covenant relationship of marriage. And anything outside of that is not God's will for us. But our world would say the opposite. That that is just so restrictive. And so, how can we pursue sexual purity? That's my big question tonight. As Christians... Wanting to live God's way, how can we pursue sexual purity in a world around us like this? What wisdom does Proverbs offer us on this question of how to pursue sexual purity? Well, I've got three answers for you tonight. I know that's usual, but the first answer is this. First answer is by listening to the right voices. Answer number one by listening to the right voices. Have a, note, have a look again at what Solomon says uh, in Proverbs 5. Notice verses 3 and 7 and 8 and 11 to 14. They'll come up on the screen. For the lips of the adulterous woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. Verse 7, Now then, my sons, listen to me. Do not turn aside from what I say. Keep to a path far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. At the end of your life, you'll groan when your flesh and body are spent. You'll say, how I hated discipline. How my heart spurned correction. I would not obey my teachers or turn my ear to my instructors. And I was soon in serious trouble in the assembly of God's people. Proverbs 5, 6, and 7 deal with this topic. And you have these speeches where the father is speaking to his son or sons and giving him God's wisdom on this topic. And so in verses 1 and 2, the father calls his son to heed his wise words. But then immediately in verse 3, you see why he's so urgent about this call. Because there are other words that are far more seductive. And so in verse 3, we're, interested, uh, we're introduced to the words of this adulterous woman. And notice, although she's clearly the wrong person for the son to listen to if he's to maintain sexual purity... Her words will drip like honey. They'll be smoother than oil. And the phrase drip honey is really speaking about eating from the honeycomb, um, the sweetness of this. And so there's so much promise here in these words that come. And then. The uh, phrase smoother than oil is really a metaphor, sadly, in the Old Testament, usually for deceitful flattery. And so the words will be very flattering, but they may not necessarily be true. But all this adds up to a seductive charm, something that is drawing the sun in, or potentially will. And so the impact of listening to these wrong voices is then unfolded in what follows in verses 4 to 6. And although the temptation is presented sweetly, the resulting taste, we're told is bitter and indeed it actually leads to death and so the competing voices are introduced in this passage and when you get to verses 7 and 8 the father's voice comes back in again you notice that he's urging his son to listen there's this heating of his voice that he doesn't want his son to miss do not turn aside from what i say verse 7 and the first thing he says in verse 8 following that again is a command to stay away, to be right away from those who are sexually impure. And then notice as the argument progresses that this theme of listening to the right voices returns. And so you get to verses 12 and 13. And what verses 12 and 13 are doing are imagining a future time down the track where the son has failed to listen to the wise words of his father, has given in to sexual temptation, and then he's reflecting on the decision he's made. And he's talking about... He's condemning himself for his failure to listen. He's saying, you know, I wouldn't heed my wise instructors. I had no time for those who spoke to me. I was not interested. I turned aside. I hated discipline. My heart spurned their correction. I would not obey my teachers. And the result in verse 14 is rebuke from God's people. There's discipline from God's covenant community. Now, we're not actually told here what happens in verse 14. What does that rebuke look like? Uh, But usually, uh, the elders or other leaders of a town or community would meet at the city gate. We've talked about this before. It was kind of a courtroom um, discussion, and some decision would be handed down over events that happened in the life of the community. And that's what's pictured here. It's a very legal setting in verse 14. So at least there'd be some public statement or rebuke of this man, and perhaps a In fact, an excommunication from the synagogue or some shunning within the community because of his actions. And so I guess we've moved here from the differing voices that people take in to perhaps consequences. But notice that theme of voices is still there because even if he's not heeded those who instructed him beforehand, he will now hear the voice of the community. They will speak into the situation and there'll be consequences for what unfolded. Whether he wants to hear them or not. Well, as we apply this first point to ourselves tonight, I want to ask you the question, uh, as we think about the competing voices in our own ears, you know, are, are you giving airtime to voices in your life which are not helpful, which are drawing you away to lower your standard, to think that the world's immoral views are okay? You know, Whether you're single or married here tonight, whatever your status in seeking not to imitate society's sexual impurity, you've got to ask yourself the question, you know, how do I stop the world's values permeating my mind? If I turn on the radio, they can do it. If I turn on the TV, if I'm looking at something on my computer or my phone, I'm constantly being bombarded with messaging, good or bad. And So I need to think about the voices that I'm hearing. You know, why, for example, can we so often justify watching movies where sexually immoral values are portrayed as okay? Uh, We do it so often because that kind of plot line is what fills nearly every movie that Hollywood makes. That's the message we keep hearing. You might say, Well, I don't watch you know terrible movies that are, you know, gonna be unhelpful for me in that way. Yeah, but even the mainstream movies, the ones that everybody sees, always have this messaging. Probably many of you have seen the movie Titanic. I know I'm going back some years now, but it was such a massive movie. It was one of the highest grossing movies ever. James Cameron's blockbuster. And you've got to ask yourself the question, why was this movie so popular? I mean, it wasn't because of the unpredictable ending. I mean, we knew the boat was going to sink, right? So why did we go to see this movie? Because it promised an amazing love story. There was Leonardo DiCaprio, and he was everyone's flame apparently at the time. And then there was Kate Winslet, and you know, they were going to get together and it would be a wonderful love story. So we went to see it. Sure, it had great special effects, and there were other things. But I tell you what was amazing about this movie it was amazing how it made an adulterous relationship look just right. So remember, Kate Winslet is actually already engaged in the movie, she's about to be married. And then she has this fling with Leonardo and it's presented to us. It's all fine because, well, it's a quest for true love. And so it's only right that they got together and that she broke off what she'd promised to commit to in the marriage that was coming. Well, it wasn't a quest for true love. It was just lustful self-satisfaction. Let's call it what it was. But we find ourselves being drawn into the plot line. The scriptwriter convinces us well, that's what I felt as I watched it that this is all fine. And that's what the presentation of impurity is like in our world, over and over and over again. That's nothing. It's OK. You might say, look, uh, I'm, I'm a strong Christian. I'm not influenced by any of this messaging. If, if something's like that, I know it's wrong. I'm unaffected by such voices into my life. Well, I think we overestimate ourselves so often. <laughs> I've said it before, I think, but I used to use that argument all the time to justify stuff in my teenage years, and I didn't believe it then. I certainly don't believe it now. The longer I go in life, the less and less I believe that I can trust myself with whatever I might want to do, that I'm not affected by anything that I see or do or hear. What we've got to do is develop a healthy mistrust of ourselves. That's a much more uh, appropriate way to approach things. We've got to acknowledge that we're sinners who can easily fall into temptation, that we often end up watering down God's holy standards because of the influences around us. Now the prophet Jeremiah put it as it truly is in terms of our hearts that can so easily be led astray when he said the heart is deceitful above all things. It is beyond cure, completely beyond cure. Who can understand it, he writes. Now this is not about being legalistic. I'm not interested in telling you what movie to go and see tonight. I'm trusting that you will make those decisions yourself. It's not about that at all. It's about confronting us with the truth that we have real decisions to make moment by moment, day by day, that we need to be prayerful about, that we need to have a heightened conscience, that we believe that the Holy Spirit is going to convict us and cause us to say no to certain things, that everything's not okay, that I don't need to view everything like everyone else does, that there are things that will be unhelpful for me and I'm going to make firm decisions about that. In fact, I'm going to be confronted with them all the time. And at that moment, I've got to ask the question, am I watching content? Am I reading things? Am I listening to music that is just dulling my sensitivity to the immoral? I'm just kidding myself. If I'm constantly hearing the wrong voices, what is going to happen? Surely my moral standards are going to decline. I'm going to start to shift away from God's revealed will, if only subtly. And that's all that needs to happen. That's the devil's best trick, to just slowly move us away from what God would have us do. It can be imperceptible, but it's devastating in time. First answer. We need to have the right voices that are filling our minds. Second answer to our question. How might we pursue purity? By fleeing temptation. A simple point, but so important. By fleeing temptation from going way away from it. Notice again uh, what is stated in chapter 6, verses 25 to 29. Here's Solomon writing. Do not lust in your heart after her beauty, or let her captivate you with her eyes. For a prostitute can be had for a loaf of bread, but another man's wife preys on your very life. Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? So is he who sleeps with another man's wife. No one who touches her will go unpunished. Well, verse 25 is pretty pretty blunt with us again, isn't it? The father's speaking to the son once more and he's saying, Do not lust. Do not lust for a woman that he is not married to. He's not to be captivated by her eyes and so tempted to lust after her beauty. And yes, the word beauty here is meaning, as we'd understand it, the outward appearance, her form. That is the root word in the Hebrew. And there's a parallelism going in the two lines of verse 25 here, which is suggesting to us that coveting begins by looking. Desires come into our heart through visual stimulation. Probably not a surprise, but worth saying, because so often we think it doesn't affect us. And the warning assumes here that wrong desires will lead to sinful actions. So often they do. And notice that the problem for the son here is not in the end that he saw something. The problem is his heart. That's the issue in the end. The solution in the previous verse, verse 24, is to keep away from the temptation to not place himself in that path. And that theme is emphasised a number of times in Proverbs 5-7. to In fact, there's an illustration of it in chapter 7. Let me take you to that now. It's a long section. I'm just going to take a snippet so that you get the gist of it. But Have a look with me at verses 7-10 to of chapter 7. Here is the father telling the son a story about a young man that he observed. I saw among the simple... I noticed among the young men a youth who had no sense. He was going down the street near her corner, walking along in the direction of her house at twilight as the day was fading, as the dark of night set in. And then out came a woman to meet him, dressed like a prostitute and with crafty intent. And then the father in verse 24, Now then, my sons, listen to me. Pay attention to what I say. Do not let your heart turn to her ways or stray into her paths. Notice that putting yourself in the path of temptation here is just complete foolishness. Uh, The young man is described as simple. The literal word in the Hebrew is gullible. He's stupid to place himself in this position. In fact, he's described that way half a sentence later. He has no sense because of where he goes and when he goes there. You notice the picture of on twilight at darkness. Picturing again um, sin and darkness are often used together as metaphors in the Old Testament and in the New. And the conclusion in verse 25 from the Father is don't place yourself in this situation. Stay away. Don't enter into these paths. Don't place yourself in the way of temptation. Now look, as we apply this second point to ourselves today, we need to ask the question now, not so much what voices are we allowing in, but what places do we need to avoid going to? And it could be different for different people here. What are the places of temptation that you should avoid? I guess in Proverbs 7, it's avoiding people who are sexually promiscuous. But that's only one of countless ways, isn't it, today that we might flee temptation. I found when I was living at Chatswood a few years ago, when you still had video stores, that going into the video store was no good uh, because I would go in to pick movies for my kids that were in the G and the PG and what did they stick next to it? But all the porn movies, how helpful that was. I just decided I'm not going into video easy and Chatswood ever again if they're going to do it that way. We've got to think about the opportunities to be tempted where things are unhelpful for us. The problem is it's not just about places anymore, is it? I don't have to go anywhere to be tempted. I just need to sit in the comfort of my lounge room and turn on Netflix and see whatever movie that may be unhelpful for me. I just need to be in the comfort of my bedroom and use my computer or some other device And to search up whatever I want. I don't need to leave my house to put myself in the pathway of temptation. And that's why it's getting harder and harder, isn't it? Let me give you some stats. An American study last year found that every second, this is every second, 28,000 users are watching pornography on the internet. $3,000 is being spent on pornography every second. More than that, 372 people are typing the word adult into a search engine every second. As I've said that sentence, thousands. Every day in America, 37 porn videos or movies are made. 2.5 billion emails containing porn are sent or received. 68 million Queries related to pornography are generated. You know, 25% of all searches on the internet are porn-related. One quarter. Every day in America. And we've got to say, well, what is the impact of that? What is happening? What has been happening over the last 20 or 30 years as that has become so pervasive? What will happen in the next 30 years as people grow up just saturated with that around them? Well, this study gave a summary of some of the impacts that are happening already in the US. They said 200,000 Americans are classified as porn addicts now. 200,000. And 40 million Americans regularly use porn sites. 40 million. There's only 260 million in the country, right? 35% of all internet downloads are related to pornography and it's causing huge, huge problems in marriages across America. 34% of users um, have experienced unwanted exposure through pop-up ads, uh, links or emails that were misdirected. And so often in the past, this has been seen as a male-only problem and it's still the majority, but one-third of porn users in the United States are now women. This is so pervasive. It's permeating everything that it is undoing relationships left, right, and center. It's creating a huge mess. And if you're like me, as you hear these stats, and you've probably heard lots of them before, they just wash over you after a while because you cannot take them in. They're so vast. It's just numbing because the opportunities to place yourself in the pathway of temptation are now limitless. And it's such an abyss, and it's going to take an astronomical toll on our society. It already is. And the problem is not that you can move your computer into a public place, as people used to say, because, well, you've got a mini-computer on your phone that goes with you 24-7 now. It's very hard to control that, isn't it, in the lives of um, people you might have responsibility over, like children, let alone for yourself, Now, there's certainly things we can do, as we've talked about on previous occasions. You can have accountability software for your computer or devices, and I do that. I've used Covenant Eyes for years. It costs money. There are other ones that are free, but I have two accountability partners that get sent everything I view every week. I do it because it's important. I do it to help me. And we need to be convinced that we have to flee these temptations. Our response so often, even as Christians, is it's not a problem. Um, I can cope with anything. None of these things affect me. I won't be drawn into this stuff. And so I put no protections in place. I don't take the temptation seriously. But there's consequences. Have a look at the consequences even 3,000 years ago in Solomon's day. Let's return to verses 27 to 29 in chapter 6. Is the consequences of placing yourself in the path of temptation. And they're great. We're given some memorable metaphors, aren't we? Uh, he's focusing particularly on adultery here. And he says, well, adultery is like scooping fire into your lap. Adultery is like walking on hot coals. And he's putting them in the place of rhetorical questions and says, well, can you do that without being impacted? Obvious answer being no, um, Throwing fire into your lap doesn't work well usually. And so the idea here is that we're supposed to see that the consequences are inevitable. They're negative when it comes to sexual temptation. And Solomon even makes the point in this chapter, in chapter 6, that a thief can even make recompense. He might have stolen stuff out of your house and he could even be jailed for it or taken to court, but he could repay. You could have the money returned or the possessions returned, but you cannot repay adultery. You cannot fix that problem afterwards. And so sexual immorality has a great impact on us and the resulting impact socially is big. Solomon wants to say in chapter 6, there's unending reproach. Unending reproach from the community. That there is a sense in which, in the end, therefore, sexual immorality can prey on your very life. Chapter 6, verse 26. And so we need to feel the gravity of that, especially in our day. Let me take you to one example in the New Testament to show that it's not just Solomon in Proverbs. This same point of fleeing sexual sin at all cost is made many times in the New Testament. Have a look at 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18 as one example. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Paul's pointing out something here about sexual sins that Solomon has just pointed out in Proverbs 6, and that is that they are distinct, that they are different to other sins in the sense that they are self-destructive. Now, be very clear here. The Apostle Paul is not saying that sexual sin is any worse than any other sin. All sin is sin before God. All sins can be forgiven. But there is a sense in which sexual immorality, because it affects our bodies, which are temples of the Holy Spirit if we're trusted in Christ, that there's an impact there upon ourselves that just can't be removed. There are consequences. There are regrets that we take with us for the rest of our life. It can affect our self-identity, our self-worth. But let me say, in a group this big tonight, there'll be lots of us that have struggled in one way or another with sexual immorality. Uh, Maybe it's pornography, maybe it's something else altogether. But I want to say to you, um, we can often feel the weight of these things. And for some of us, we need to feel it because we're quite hardened in our conscience to the dangers of these things. But for others of us, we're very tender in conscience about it. And we hear another talk on this kind of topic and we just despair because we think it's so hard and we see the continuing struggle in our life in this area. Well, let me say to you tonight two things. One, God is gracious and compassionate. God can wipe the slate clean in every area of your life, including in this one. God longs for us to come before him in true repentance, to deal with it, so that he might forgive us and let me encourage you to bring it into the light so often in the new testament the picture of sin is something that is hidden in the darkness and we're encouraged to expose it and to bring it out to talk with somebody else about it so that we might get real and actually address it and make progress to definitely confess it before god and be honest with him But to acknowledge that this is something that we can grow in, that God is in the work of transforming people, that he has granted you his spirit if you've trusted in his son so that he might make you a new creation, that he might do something new in your life. You are not stuck in whatever rut you may have been in. He can have a new day for you. So let me encourage you that there is so much to be encouraged by about God's grace to us in this area. Secondly, let me say that if this is an ongoing struggle for you, then please reach out to somebody, whether that's tonight or in this next week. Don't allow it to be something that you try and struggle along on your own with. It's one of those areas where we feel more shame than others. We feel it's like the hardest thing. We couldn't possibly talk about that with other people. But that's why the devil often gets a foothold and continues to have it. We need to... Create a culture, a sense of community where we'll talk about all things with each other, including this area. So please, let me encourage you to bring it to the light, to ask for God's help, to seek the support of brothers and sisters in Christ. It brings me to a third and final answer to this question, and we've been going there already. Our third answer to the question of how to pursue sexual purity, and that is by responding to God's grace, by responding to God's grace. We've just spoken about that, but notice what is stated in Titus 2. Here's a wonderful passage to hang your hopes upon if you struggle in this area. Titus 2, verses 11 to 14. The Apostle Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Notice this verse 14. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Notice the grace of God does two things here. It not only saves us, God's undeserved, unmerited kindness shown to us, that we receive his forgiveness, that our sin is dealt with at the cross and through Christ's resurrection. But more than that, God's grace then leads us in our growth in godliness, in our sanctification. Notice that we have the educating power of grace here. It teaches us how to live for God. And it does this in two ways, negatively and positively. Notice negatively, it helps us to say no to ungodliness and to worldly passions. Positively, it tells us how we might live upright Self controlled and godly lives. And the fact that we get these dual descriptions tells us that we can't just be thinking we've got to turn away from certain sins. We certainly need to do that, but positively, we've got a new life to live for God. We've got new passions that He's going to produce in our life that will reshape us. Now, instead of longing to give in to worldly passions, I desire to follow Jesus. I want to read his word. I want to hear God's voice into my life. I'm longing for the Holy Spirit to bring change. I'm pursuing God, not the things of this world. And so he's going to produce change as I seek to please my Savior. And a key way to do this in this passage, notice, is that great little phrase about self-control. Such an important thing to think about in this theme. It's a theme that's highlighted a number of times in the New Testament. Let me take you to one place in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3-5. to 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-5, the Apostle Paul says this, It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. For two great tips here from Paul. He's repeated our second point already in verse 3 there. Avoid sexual immorality. That is, flee temptation. Don't place yourself in the path. But also, verse 4, self-control. That's so important, isn't it? Because we can say, look, I'm not going to place myself in places where I'm going to get tempted and be confronted with this. But we can still find ourselves in those moments where we didn't plan anything, but we're confronted with a situation that's difficult. And it's at that moment where I can't flee perhaps, but I have to exercise self-control. I used to find that a lot in our service stations because you'd go in to pay for your fuel and they'd lovely um, magazine covers put right next to you to try and tempt you. It'd be Playboy and whatever else as you're paying for the fuel that you've just got from the service station. So I've got my eyes straight ahead on the cash register all the time so that I'm not seeing all this junk to my left. Thankfully, they're dying now. Everything's so on the internet, they don't need a magazine, do they? And they're pushing it out of coals and woolies, thank God. But we can find ourselves in places where we've got to exercise self-control. And so the Paul tells us it's something we've got to work at. It doesn't come naturally to us. We have to learn it, did you notice there, in verses 4 and 5. And so we apply ourselves... And our thinking, our wisdom to these unhelpful situations that we find ourselves in. We've got to find a path to navigate them when we're in the middle of them. So let me offer a couple of quick suggestions uh, some for guys, some for the girls on this area of self control. Some simple points, but worth saying again. Firstly, for the guys, look, showing self control could mean going out in groups more often, not being alone with a woman in a public place, uh, unless it's in a public place. If you're spending long times alone, uh, without anybody around, then you're placing yourself in the path of temptation. So why not just go to the cafe or some other place publicly where you're surrounded by other people? And that takes that out of the equation altogether. If you're in a relationship with someone prior to marriage, then we need to think about that all the more. clearly attracted to the person, wanting to spend time with them, not wanting to be in a compromising situation where we're going to lead each other into temptation. We've always got to think about our girlfriend or our boyfriend as somebody else's potential marriage partner because our relationship may not lead to marriage. We need to act with honour in the present, not assuming what will happen in the future, which hasn't yet unfolded. With regard to Christian sisters, Paul has this instruction to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5. Treat younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Well, I hesitate, but let me offer a couple of suggestions to women. Uh, first of them, this. Uh, like men, don't place yourself in compromising situations. Surely the same truth is important for both sexes. But another area that females need to consider in particular, is their mode of dress. And that's not just because males struggle with visual stimulation, uh, which is true, and they need to work on that, but because it's an expression of being holy and honourable. The Apostle Paul again states this in 1 Timothy 2. Christian women are to be different. So he says, I want women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. and We live in a society that says, flaunt female beauty at every second. But Christian women are to be different. Well, let me conclude and apply God's grace one step further as we think about this issue of sexual purity. I think as we hear all these things, it can be so easy to think that God's ways of doing things, because this is the message we hear from the world, are so restrictive, it's so constrained, it's so prudish and difficult. All these boundaries set around things. God somehow is, you know, just unhelpful. He's always making things difficult. This is the, the conversation we get from our non Christian friends. They've got complete freedom. And why are you worrying about such things all the time? Your God is so restrictive. What we need to see is that with boundaries that God gives us, he actually endows us with wonderful freedom. That it's his grace to us that he gives us his instruction and wisdom in his word. Let me talk about grace and law when it comes to our sexuality. The Canadian pastor and writer Tim Challies noted this in his blog. There are many reasons, he writes, for God's instructions that we might live and express our sexuality within the covenant commitment of marriage. One of them, which expresses his loving heart, is this. Marriage allows us to enjoy sex under grace instead of under law. How does that work? Well, this is a crucial lesson, he says, that Christopher Ashe draws out in his book, Married for God. Uh, maybe you've read that book. If you haven't, uh, let me recommend it. It's a very good book. But within that book, Christopher Ashe says this. Law is a system in which blessings and benefits are bestowed according to performance. And we often hear people, don't we, thinking about sexuality in that way. We hear people talk about cohabiting to determine their their level of sexual uh, compatibility. They'll say, you know, how else will we know if we're going to have a successful relationship unless you try before you buy? And so, of course, you need to be in a sexual relationship before you make any kind of long-term commitment. There's a problem with that, isn't it? This is sex that must prove itself. It's sex diminished, hampered, crippled, in God's eyes, blasphemed. Because this is not God's intention and it doesn't lead to faithfulness within a relationship. But rather the opposite. Adultery is the same. But you see, marriage relationship is a relationship of grace, not law. And such grace is crucial for the flourishing of sexual intimacy and purity. And so Ash makes that crucial point that it is God's grace that He gives us a secure context of marriage to persevere through our vulnerability, through our fragility, indeed, through our failure. That's God's grace to us. It's a good thing. You know, we started with the question. How can I pursue sexual purity? And we've seen that there are at least three answers that come to us from Proverbs and elsewhere. Firstly, we've got to have the right voices, the right input coming into our minds all the time. And secondly, we need to flee temptation. We don't want to put ourselves in the pathway of difficulty all the time. And thirdly, we need to respond to God's grace. We need to understand, firstly, the forgiveness that is on offer When we do fail through God's grace, but also understand that God's grace will lead us in pursuit of him who calls us to holiness. And that will look like self-control. Living godly lives that recognize that we're a new person. Your motivation in the end is not because there's this or that boundary. Yes, it's important that God's commanded it and we respond to his word. But it's also about identity. It's about who we now are. If you're a new creation in Christ, if you have been brought into his family, he's bought you with his blood. He's not only created you, but saved you through his work on the cross and his resurrection on the third day. You are now his. He owns you. You want to live for him. And so that new identity, that new sense of who you are will just affect everything you do in life, including your sexuality. There's no onerous burden on any of this, but a joy to live God's way to honour our Saviour, the Lord Jesus. And so we do it in order to please Him. That is who we are. Will you join me in prayer? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word to us. We acknowledge that it's a heavy word to us in our culture today. But Lord, we ask that you might strengthen us by your Spirit. You might make us aware that there is wonderful grace through the Lord Jesus. Not only salvation, but ongoing forgiveness as we bring our struggles before you. Lord, help us to keep short accounts, particularly in this area of our life, that we might run to you expressing our repentance and that we might seek the help of our brothers and sisters, that we might honour you with our lives. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.